0: Welcome to How We Run, a podcast where we examine how nonprofits become successful. I'm Trent Stam, CEO of the ICER
1: Foundation.
2: And I'm Julie Lapacher, founder of Good Ways, Inc. On this episode, we're talking about community centric fundraising with Molly Marsh Kina, the Senior Vice President of Development at Earth Justice. Molly shares with us how her staff has been super intentional about embracing community centric fundraising principles. It's a great conversation. All right, Trent, today we're talking about community-centric fundraising, which people in fundraising have been having a lot of conversations around this in the last year or so. Is it something that you have started to touch at your organization? We're
0: talking about it because I think it's very important development. And I think that we need to To figure out ways on the funding side to to be more reflective of the community and to to recognize the impacts that we have with our funding and who we fund and who we don't fund and and what that looks like. But I'm not going to pretend that we're experts. Thankfully, we have a guest who certainly knows the topic inside and out. But it's certainly something that we're starting to try to understand a little bit better. Yeah.
2: So you run a family foundation. And as such, your board is entirely made up of people from that family. Yeah. So that when we think about diverse perspectives and you think about your board being all one family, how do you bring in conversations and diversity and learnings from outside of the family?
1: We
0: like to bring in grantees, prospective grantees, community experts. We like to introduce readings about the topic because I think that the family that's involved with our foundation is Extremely thoughtful and contemplative, and in it for the right reason. And we fund primarily in Los Angeles County, and they've been residents of this community for over fifty years, and so they know it really well. But it'd be crazy for any of us to pretend that that they're a particularly diverse group or that they have experiences that are reflective of most of the people that we serve. So I do think it's important to bring other voices to the table. And I think every foundation should do it, not just those that are are family foundations and have one family on on the name of the door.
2: Yeah, and I've heard that from other foundations. I know the Disney Family Foundation does that fairly often where they will bring in grantees and say, how can we make our process easier for you? Where is it cumbersome? I,
0: I think more conversations is a good thing. Just talking, identifying some sort of collective vision is surely going to advance our, our efforts in this area. And looking at each other as partners and not just as uh, funders and grantees is a really positive step.
2: Yeah, and that reflects one of the community-centered fundraising principles of nonprofits should be generous with and mutually supportive of one another. So it's not just about one nonprofit's mission or dominance in a community. It's really about the community first. I know that in your work, you encourage nonprofits to work with each other and to serve similar communities.
0: It's important to recognize that in many cases, those nonprofits are competing with other nonprofits for limited resources. When we come in and tell them, collaborate a lot of times their initial reaction is are you going to collaborate with other funders to support us when we collaborate with other service delivery organizations we just have to do a better job of getting on the same page with each other whether it's funders and other funders or funders and nonprofits or nonprofits and other nonprofits we all made this decision to enter the sector because we wanted to make things better in some form or another and uh, if any of your behavior whether you're a funder or a nonprofit is detrimental to that goal then you have to ask yourself what you're really trying to do. And, and that's one of the things that we do at the foundation is we ask ourselves all the time, are we helping? Are we really helping? Is everything we do helping? And if it's not, who should we go talk to so we can get better at it?
2: That's a great way to put it. So we have Molly Marsh-Heine from Earth Justice here with us today. She's talking about how her organization is actually changing their fundraising mission to be more community-centric. And so she takes us through all the things that the fundraising department at Earth Justice has done to be more community centric in their fundraising.
0: That's terrific. What
2: impressed me about their work was that they're really taking on the principles one at a time and deliberately discussing them and saying, how does our work benefit from embracing this principle? I think what they've found is that it is really improved their fundraising top to bottom. It's improved their function as a staff and. They've seen great benefits all around. I'm really glad to share this conversation.
0: And they show that if if they can do it, then just about any organization can and probably should be doing it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we
1: will hear from Molly. My name is Molly Marsh-Heina, and I am the Senior Vice President of Development at Earth Justice. And Earth Justice is the world's premier public interest law firm for the environment. Some people know us by our tagline, which is earth justice because the earth needs a good lawyer. And sometimes to keep it simple, I will say we're basically the ACLU for the environment.
2: Molly, one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you is that I know that you've made it a strategy to be more community centric in your fundraising. And can you tell us what that means to you?
1: Environmental movement in particular has long had struggles with racism just like many other NGOs and particularly the environmental movement has been very white centered and white led as part of our effort to be an anti-racist organization and to really uplift the movement to create more authenticity and really a stronger movement overall. It can't be a white movement for it to be successful. We have been looking at all of our practices, and it's been everything from who is Earth Justice and how do we look as a staff, making sure that we are diversifying our staff? What is our culture and how does our culture support everyone, regardless of race, race, ethnicity or background, to bring them their full selves to work, to thrive and nurture and have a vibrant career? What does our board look like? And then what are our practices? Sometimes organizations can diversify how they look in terms of racial makeup or demographic, but haven't changed their culture at all. And if you don't have a culture that um, is welcoming and uh, a supportive, safe place for staff of color, then they just leave and you're right back where you started from and really not being self-reflective. So there's been a, a concerted effort around culture building. And I want to caveat that Earth Justice certainly hasn't arrived and figured it out. We're on a journey just like everyone else is. But how that comes down to the development department, then my area of expertise, we've had to do our own work around both how do we support the organization's effort and the movement's effort to be anti racist? And what does it mean to be raising money in an economic system that really encourages and fosters wealth disparity? How can we be part of the solution? How can we be funding our partners, helping both in wealth redistribution, as well as skills, capacity, training and uplifting and being partners, putting our partner stories first, all within this really interesting bubble of capitalism, where you really do need to raise the money. You're not really outside of the system. You're in the system. So what can you do to change it from within to create a more level playing field to kind of rewrite how we interact with individuals of wealth, power, and influence. And it's it's to live our value system. So I don't, we don't always get it right. And I think it's, and I think there's a lot of challenges in it, but we're really committed to the practice. And uh, I certainly can't take credit for community-centric fundraising. I do want to point your listeners to a website called communitycentricfundraising.org. And if it's there are any. It's so
2: great. Yeah.
1: So maybe you've already seen it. One thing I really appreciate about uh, CCF and the consultants there who, who really built the CCF model and the 10 principles of community centric fundraising is that they said this is a work in progress. So I believe they started off seven principles and then built on that over yeah, I time. We, I, I think there's 10 now. Yeah, there are 10. And It looks really different. There are organizations that are have a million dollar operating budget or smaller. And then you have some really big organizations that have a lot of infrastructure, a lot of machine that needs to get revisited, looked at, and retooled. And we are working really hard on on examining where are we in alignment with the CCF principles? Where are we not in alignment? Where might we either disagree or say i don't know if this if we can really be there yet and but more importantly be in dialogue we've actually embraced this as a goal for the department to work on collectively and in within functional teams so At our department meetings every month, we devote 45 minutes solely to a CCF principal. And we present the principal. We share any learnings that we might have gleaned from podcasts and blogs that they have. There also is women of color and fundraising. I am an allied member of WOC, but not an actual member. You need to be a woman of color, a fundraising professional who is a woman of color to be in that group. But many of Earth Justice's development department are members of that group. And so we share information, we post that on Teams channels, and then we just get into dialogue with each other. And sometimes ways that we are in alignment will lift up and say, oh, we need to do more of that and less of that. Or there might be a brand new idea in particular, and that goes back to my development leadership team, which is a group of directors that oversee the different specialty areas within development And then we will look at items in there that we can lean into further. So like one example, funding our partners is... Uh, we have a whole working group that has worked specifically on how do we raise more money to get it out into the to the clients that we serve. We can't directly fund clients as a law practice, but there are some funding umbrellas and consortiums that allow Earth Justice to send money there. And then our clients and other environmental justice partners can seek funding from those entities. But that's just one example. Know.
2: To be honest, I'm really tempted to go through all of CCF's 10 principles, which, yes, every Everyone listening should definitely check out and say, "How are you doing this one?" But maybe we can just pick a couple. So, you yeah, that monthly you talk about one of the principles. So, yep. recently, what is one of the ones that you've talked about?
1: Yeah, we're on principle six now. So, principle six so says we treat
2: donors as partners, and this means that we are transparent and occasionally have difficult conversations. So, tell me what that means at Earth Justice.
1: So, Earth Justice's programmatic areas touch a bunch of different pieces of environmental protection, and they range from climate and clean energy work to what's in our food and pesticides, toxic chemicals, and straight up wildlife protection like wolves and bears. And then a bunch of work that we do that we still call Healthy Communities Work, but a lot of that is intersections of health issues and the environment, and they have a clear connection to environmental racism. And uh, an example could be uh, Cancer Alley, our work in fighting the petrochemical industry in Louisiana. We represent the St. James Parish and another community coalition down there. They've been fighting this work for decades saying, don't give it here. Don't put it here. Those petrochemical plants don't get built in white communities. They get built in black and brown communities. It it isn't just an accident. It's deliberate and it's targeted. And telling the story of that work, it can sound really clear. Oh, this is, that's environmental racism. And that's what you're, you're working to fight that and connect those issues. And here's where I'm going to get to principle number six it would be easy to separate out. The older environmental movement did this to say, oh, don't talk to that donor who loves wolves about how this touches environmental racism. Don't talk to that. That donor just cares about wolves. That's not what they're interested in. They, And in fact, if you talk to them about that, they may say that you are in mission drift or that this is a social issue or a race issue. And that's not what earth justice is. And we've had to learn to dialogue and to respectfully engage our donors in conversation to actually be proactive because you could be theoretically in the face of a donor who's saying, oh, great work, but just talk to me about wolves." And what we try to do is show that Just about every aspect of our work is centered with the client. We do not represent ourselves. We are a true law practice in that regard. And every piece of wildlife litigation that we do has a tribal client at its core. Most, I don't want to say all, but many nations that we work with have sacred and spiritual value to the habitat. Of um, these charismatic species, and they are critically important to their culture, both historically and ongoing. And our ability to litigate is because we are representing historic injustice that has happened to these tribal nations. And yes, it's wonderful that we protect a wolf at the same time, but it's not the whole story to say it's just about the wolves. And that's part of. Uh, white erasure that happens to say, oh, these issues aren't connected. No, they are connected. All of the intact habitat and lands that our national parks are on, many of those have negative stories at the core of Indigenous peoples that were forcibly removed Mm -hmm. off of those lands. So we want to tell the whole story. We want to center our client in those stories. And we believe we can also share beautiful successes and compelling information about the the species themselves they don't have to be exclusive.
2: Let me ask you sure. something about that. I hear you loud and clear wanting to move your donors beyond their point of interest. And I think that happens a lot of places where you where the initial reason somebody gives is just one tiny aspect of the organization. And so let's talk tactically about how you as a relationship manager bring that person in and push them to grow, really. Because I think that most donors will say one of the most rewarding parts of being a philanthropist is that it changes you. You get mm-hmm. to affect change, but then you also change yourself. So can you talk me through how you are actually tactically approaching them?
1: A lot of it has been practice in talking points. We're not trying to move a donor off of loving wolves or grizzlies. It's great. That they love these animals. We're trying to be inclusive in our language around the intersectionality of all of the work, that race and social justice isn't a set aside from biodiversity. And that's the piece that we've had to work on in our language. So another example of this narrative is telling the story of the Standing Rock Sioux and the Dakota Access Pipeline, one of our more famous cases. There is definitely a story that galvanized the world around indigenous rights and pipelines that go across native lands and historic injustices that have been visited time and time again on native peoples. We started telling that story when we first became involved in the case with narrative, and also a lot about the pipeline and um, the broken process of siting pipelines in the country, the subsidy of oil and gas industry, climate change, environmental harm. What we didn't tell the story of, but what we tell the story of now is that in Bismarck, North Dakota, there was a white community that that was where it was first proposed and they didn't want it. And they were able to successfully block it and say, not here. And where did that pipeline go? It went right to where pipelines always go. And it's where coal ash plants go. It's where big warehouse and transportation infrastructure goes. It's where trash incinerators go. And that is into Black, Brown, Asian communities in this country. And that is historic environmental racism. And you can't tell the story of the Dakota Access Pipeline without telling the story of racism and harm. And that's the full picture. And of course, definitely not saying it as well as one of our attorneys might say it, as well as the Standing Rock Sioux would certainly say themselves. But it's, to me, another embodiment of the principle of who are we centering? Are we centering Earth Justice or are we centering the Standing Rock Sioux? And what is the full story and how that educates a donor about the history of uh, this country and racism and harms that we do to people and to the planet. So very. I know that's a long narrative, but I think it's, a, it's an important example.
2: I remember working for an organization a long time ago and before going into a donor meeting, having my boss say, we're going to stay away from some of these topics. We're not going to go there. And it sounds like what you're saying at the simplest, at the heart of what you're saying is we're going to go there. We're going to have the full conversation. With community-centric fundraising, I think sometimes people think it's limiting, but it sounds like what you're finding is that it's expansive.
1: Oh, absolutely. It makes it that much more of a moral imperative to support the work. And you can come at it And where everyone wants to believe they're about changing hearts and minds. And if someone is saying, hey, this is really what is my philanthropic juice. This would, is what blows my hair back. It's sharks and diving and whatever that is. That's fine. They could still be excited about that and fund that. But we need to be in integrity with what the message is and our drive and the importance of our journey as an anti-racist organization and really to be in authentic relationship with our environmental justice partners. And so it's really, it's a lot about doing right by the movement and doing right by Earth Justice ourselves.
2: Molly, if you'll indulge me on some of these other community-centric fundraising principles, what about number five, time is valued equally as money?
1: When we think about the way donors contribute, we know it's, we all need money. We have to keep the lights on. and, And there's a whole plethora of ways organizations do that. And giving of time is truly valuable. You could have a board member that had tremendous expertise and wisdom to offer and yet is not your biggest donor. How we value that and how our language values that or our actions needs to be acknowledged. And one of the examples I can give is a very simple one in a way that we are changing our annual report this year. Annual reports often have donor lists and they could be big in print. There are some donors that like to see their name there. Mostly it comes from a a place of recognition to say, thank you. And we are going to acknowledge in print what your gift meant to us. And we've moved ours actually electronically now on our website, instead of including it in our, our paper handout, primarily because we found that the extra, most people didn't ask for the donor booklet anyway, but we still have it as we analyzed time is valued equally as money. How can we change our annual report to reflect that principle? And so this year, and it's our 50th anniversary, so it actually works really well, we are organizing our donor list by how long someone has been with the organization and their commitment over time versus the amount of money they've given. We have donors that have been with us for 30 years who give us a check for $25 a year, and that's significant for them, and we want to value that and their longevity with us means everything. So, I think that that's a simple lift that any organization can do that does an annual report or any sort of public facing document.
2: And that's very nice. I've seen a couple other organizations also include volunteers on those lists. They've actually done a calculation of what is the value of a volunteer hour. And then they've looked and they've said, wow, some of our volunteers are giving as much as some of our major donors because they give us so much time. The annual report is a really lovely place to show that value. How have these conversations changed your fundraising team? And how do you think it'll alter? What you do in the future
1: it's made our team our whole department closer and more connected we've had to have some balance in conversation sometimes we've had some fundraisers that just didn't click and what we try to acknowledge and work with is how can we support the fundraiser in this what are the teachable moments without saying that we're going to kick that donor to the curb so there there are some, just like anything, when you're learning something new, there has been some tensions in some instances. Those are few. We've really had to practice direct feedback. We've actually taken many courses in that. How do you talk about hard stuff? We've spent time on restorative justice, learning um, about how to acknowledge our impact. I would say that is, and by our, I, I want to call out myself as a white woman like that. We've worked a lot with our white fundraisers. and how they interact with their colleagues of color and being aware of implicit bias and microaggressions. But overall, it's a totally a net positive. So we're really trying to hire for culture and see where people are on their uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice journey. And sometimes they're still, they're super skilled and we want them at earth justice and they're not quite where we are at. And then you need to bring them back up to speed And in COVID, in particular, when everyone is on Zoom and you can't be in person, we've hired probably 15 staff that we've never met in person. How you bring them along in this deep culture work that that we did initially with the department and continue to do in help them find their way in the journey, but also get the foundational pieces that they need to have. That's a challenge and we're still working on getting that right.
2: Can you share how you might evaluate in the in an interview if someone is in the same place on their diversity, equity and inclusion journey as
1: you? Ask people what they do outside of work to stay educated and engaged. We also ask for how they would contribute in a fundraising capacity to the work and We have a pretty clear set of rules. People within their first six months of hire have to go through foundational anti-racist training. And that is an organization-wide mandate. It doesn't matter, quote unquote, how woke you are, you have to do earth justice training. And that helps everybody have the same language. We have required microaggression training. We have policies on microaggressions and on anti-bullying. All supervisors have a coaching sessions that they do that are specifically geared towards diversity, equity, and inclusion work.
2: Can you tell me about a mistake you've made and what you've learned from it?
1: Oh, sure. My gosh, so many different mistakes. I think anytime there's a mistake that you can look at as a teachable moment, it helps me find a place of self-forgiveness when I hold up and I just am like, dang it, didn't get that right. We had a case statement for support that Uh, We did for our current campaign, which is called Never Rest. And it's, if anyone wants to check out the collateral, they can find the Never Rest campaign on our website and see some of our materials. So, Earth Justice had never done a comprehensive campaign before. We're halfway through this one. It's 825 million we're trying to raise over five years. And it was a big deal. Like, we're going to come out with a polished, professional, outside marketing firm, branded name, trademark, and this case statement, which lays out what we want to accomplish in the world for a donor to invest in us. And we had lots of eyes on it. It We got through all the different stages. It was beautiful. And everybody that was looking at it was at an age where they don't need reading glasses for the most part. And our outside marketing firm said, I really think it should be not a big book, but something that's a little smaller and precious in that way and it will stand out more and be modern and we're like yeah let's do that and we just it's talk about tunnel vision and showing it only to yourselves members of our board who are participating in that process had seen uh, pieces of it that blown up on slides and we talked about it and they'd seen visuals but anyway the whole thing arrives We've got a stack of 750 of them, expensive printing, and I could barely read them. It was in the tiniest font and it was like a $10,000 mistake, which is not much in the face of the whole number we're trying to raise, but a waste. And we still try to use them, but it became clear we mailed them out. And I remember thinking, this is pretty small and pretty much to a T, any donor over the age of 55 was like, I cannot read this. Full stop.
2: Why you said there was so important of just showing it to ourselves.
1: Yeah. And, and not showing like the final proofs and and the audience, who is the audience this is for? It's for a lot of people across the age spectrum, but a lot of our donors are over the age of 60 and they are really important audience. And we should have thought about having someone in that age group and demographic look at this print in font. And what's funny or ironic, we were focused on making sure that we were centering equity in the piece and our anti-racist values and our clients and that our imagery was positive and affirming of our clients versus anything stereotypical. Anyway, and then we just missed the mark on the font. Oh my God, really? Yeah.
2: Thinking about being in the middle of a pandemic, how has that changed how you connect with some of your donors? What have you done differently to adapt?
1: The very beginning, so much fear, right? What's this going to do to the economy? Is the zombie apocalypse happening? I remember telling someone, I didn't sign up to live in end times. I'm, I've am i been trying to prevent end times. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, like we just didn't know what we were working with. I can Say the directors that I work with on our development leadership team were amazing. We just got into a huddle and what felt like a mind meld and a what needs to happen first and how do we pivot and met regularly to put that in action. I spent a lot of time with my network of other chief development officers, talking with them about what they were seeing and their trends and just trying to get support and ideas from each other. We pivoted immediately to online events and teleconferences. We had already started to do some of those, and we just did more of those. We went right into Zoom, donor discovery calls, cultivation, and solicitations. I think uh, one month into shutdown, I did a $15 million ask that was successful. We started doing virtual reality trips. I'm really proud to say that we've won two awards for innovation, and awesome. successfully launching online events during COVID that were really well attended. We did it's it. It's always
2: we, like a virtual tour, or it's a. We virtual... send it to
1: their house. We're like, I know we canceled our trip to Alaska, but do you still want to come along? And we had drone technology that was filmed of our work with our tribal partners and in the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge and up by the Arctic Circle. We had that put into a virtual reality format and then people get a kit in the mail if they've signed on for the experience and they get to log in at a few times during the course of a week. It's not every single day, they get time with our program partners, with our actual clients, and then they could put on their goggles and they go on this experience. virtual virtual reality goggles that works with their iPhone. And it really is amazing where you're like, this is, I am like flying over the Arctic right now. So we've gotten great reviews on folks that have participated in that experience. I often laugh, like fundraisers, phones never ring. Like when a donor calls you back, you're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. It made my day. Everybody was picking up the phone during COVID. They were bored. Oh,
2: sure. Yeah, I'll answer those unknown numbers.
1: Bored, available, people who wouldn't have taken the time to meet for a lunch in Manhattan now we're like i'd be happy to spend 20 minutes on a zoom with you so some of those tools we are using to actively to reduce our carbon footprint to not travel more we're not fully in person we won't be until january 1st at earth justice but we are there's voluntary travel happening i've started traveling again but i still meet with donors now regularly over zoom it's become a tool and i think it will stay There And it's imploring us to ask the question of, do we and should we be traveling and ways to reduce carbon footprint? Once you are back in person with someone, you really see, oh, yeah, it's a much more preferred form of communication and connection with someone. And seeing someone's face on Zoom and having a relationship, uh, you can build a relationship this way, too.
2: Can you give folks... Who are fundraisers a tip on how to build connections on
1: Zoom? I don't think it's very different. I, In fact, usually we offer Zoom first now. And I've just started to say, if I'm in an area traveling, I'll be meeting with some donors in November on my way to our board meeting in New York. And I've said, we can meet by Zoom. I'm also happy to meet outside in a way that's COVID safe. I'm required to be vaccinated and I will wear a mask the whole thing. Wherever you are, I can meet. That comfort level. And some will say, let's start with the Zoom. And many times, if I know I can't travel to see someone, I'll just offer the Zoom right away because it can make things faster. Yeah. It used to be that you had to wait till the stars align so that you could make that lunch meeting work. And now it's really about calendaring and a Zoom, and it can happen. Most Zooms, it's rare that I have an hour long Zoom with a donor. I'd say you get right down to it, and it they end up being 30 minutes to 45 minutes long. I keep my door closed. I have a dog that's somewhere over here, but in general, I don't have the dogs around, especially if it's a solicitation. I try to just go into shutdown mode or set expectations with the donor. Hey, I have my dog or my children are still doing online education. I just want you to be aware that there could be an eight-year-old like running in here or something like that. I think that's a helpful tool and visuals can work, but I'd be cautious about them. Sometimes when a PowerPoint comes on, you now are not seeing your donor's face and you still need to read body language as much as you can and check in. And they can easily tune out. People multitask a lot when they're on screen. And so if you are going to use slides, it helps to really be strategic. And I think to be minimal in the use of them, just from my Experience of
2: Molly, that's such a good point because I think that changes the connection from a conversation to a presentation. So it's not let's talk together, it's let me talk at you.
1: Yeah, that's right. And you're, and if that's not
2: what you're doing, that's what it's signaling.
1: Yeah. And we do use online presentations a lot, but it tends to be with folks who are already known to us, a current donor or board members, board meetings, those often have presentations. But when I'm first meeting someone, I rarely have a PowerPoint presentation I'm going to put in there with them. And certainly even a solicitation. I don't think I've ever used a PowerPoint with a solicitation either. I have done a lot of snail mail packaging during COVID where I will I want them to like get something tangible at their house. And I'll say, here's our case statement. Would love for you to review that in advance of our meeting and just breeze through it and tell us what you think. That's a great place to start a meeting. Yep.
2: Yeah. Very smart. What's your number one tip for someone who's at an organization who says, yes, we need to be more community centric in our fundraising. Where should they start?
1: Well, I think it's great to start with CCF and going to the website and getting onto any of their archived uh, podcasts and webinars. I know that when I was exploring that, they're very busy and I relied on my attending of webinars and pulling down of material. But that doesn't mean that they might not be able to engage someone that way. There are really talented consultants in that group. And so that's certainly an option you've got to just start somewhere and figure out where you can begin. The principles are a great way to do that. We're not trying to get through all of the principles all at once. It's a multi-year effort for us. You could easily spend a year on principle number one. That might be what your organization could take on. The important point is that you're starting someplace and doing that work. And See how it can be adaptive for you. Those little changes, the beginnings of conversations. I would say lean into mistakes because you'll make them. I have fumbled many times and I'm really grateful for the loving, kind colleagues who have helped correct me. I so appreciate that. Have humility in it. If you're a white person, do your work for sure in your place in the privilege that you have. Be a beginner. Be a learner. To do don't be afraid to say what you don't know. And I think most importantly, you've got to begin and to do it. I really don't think any organization has an excuse. I don't care if you're the professional golf association or what. Everybody who has an incorporated nonprofit in the United States of America, their lives are touched by racism and need to be finding a way to center their work in racial and social equity.
2: Very well said. I always love to hear a fundraising tip. So do you want to leave our listeners with a fundraising tip?
1: I think a fundraising tip, especially in COVID times, is to keep momentum and to be persistent. I used to work with just one of the most talented fundraisers ever, used to work for the Nature Conservancy, Julia Cashian, and she's retired now. And she just never gave up on some folks that she knew had the capacity to give. And I would be impatient and say, I don't know. I don't think they're ever going to give more. And she said, I don't know. And she just kept doing these methodical little touches and just give a little bit of focus of her time to this individual. And that individual ended up making a $5 million gift and has been giving millions and millions to the work ever since. And it was another one of those learning lessons around how you stay persistent and didn't mean she gave all of her time to that donor. She couldn't. She had a big portfolio, but she just every now and then was like, oh, "I'm going to push this one article," or "I'm just going to see if they'll do this one meeting or attend that event." And it had great results, and it's because she was so committed to the long game versus the short game.
2: I want to underline something I said there. I think you you said persistent, but you didn't say relentless. Oh, no, yeah. I think sometimes when people hear the advice to be persistent, No, these are tiny touches. These are open invitations.
1: These are. Was thinking of you by persistent. It could maybe at most have been a quarterly touch, like just uh, here's something. Like I'm thinking of you, and it paid off over time. Excellent.
2: Thank you so much for your time, Molly. Thank you so much for being here. We have a request for you, dear listeners.
0: I'm hoping that if you enjoy how we run, that you will go and leave a review for us. Your review allows others to find us, and that's a good thing because the more people that listen, the more impact we can have on the sector and that we can bring about positive change for, for other nonprofits that are out there. So if you like what you're listening to, please leave us a review.
2: If you want to be a guest on the show, you think you have a good story and you want to share, you can email us at info at
1: goodwaysinc.com.